Good everyone, this is Rita Joyan and welcome to the Unbox Your Give podcast, how to turn a passion into a profession. My guest today is Jean Corbett. He's regarded as one of Australia's leading road safety advocates and reg regularly features on TV and radio. Jean was a member of the team of performance driving instructors as part of the Mercedes-Benz F1 program. In 2004, Jean formed Total Driver. Total Driver is a competency-based training program that prepares parents and students to release the total driver in every person, safer driving, safer roads, safer community. Total Driver played an essential role in the launch of many Australian vehicle launches from Ford Focus, Ford VF Falcon to Land Rover and Vogue models. In 2016, Total Driver began its rollout of its franchise model. Jean, welcome to the podcast. How are we doing? Excellent. Thank you. Now, to every guest that comes on this podcast, we start off with, can you get us to get to know more about you by sharing a failure that you've experienced in your journey? Well, I've had some massive ones, actually, some pretty epic ones. There was one we nearly nailed the deal with one of the global vehicle manufacturers for a national rollout. The, the deal would have been worth about $26 million a year just for the Australian market. And I didn't understand the process of a competitive bid. So as the, the GFC was rolling through, and we were talking about it before it was common terms, I'd gotten rid of the other players working on a handshake deal and the world changed and I lost it all. Oh my God. How did you recover <laughs> mentally from that? <laughs> oh, well, you just, you have to pick yourself up and dust yourself off. The next day is a new day. I guess the way that I looked at it was, I looked at the opportunity. The opportunity was the vision that I set out for the business was right on the money. It was the market was what I thought it was going to be. The consumer, which was the, the top end of town, were doing exactly what I thought they were going to do. The customer in terms of the people who bought our programs were receiving it the way that I thought they would. And I just looked at it. Well, it was my lack of experience in doing business at that level that brought us undone. So I went and then set out to build a team of people that we could go and tackle and get back to that point. Oh, fantastic. Wonderful. That's, mm. that's, 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 a, that's a biggie. That's a biggie. All right. So yeah, it's pretty big. <laughs> just slightly. Take me back. You have a t training program called Total Driver. And this is really interesting because if anybody who's listening has a training program that they want to be able to, roll out, turn that into profession. I want to go back. How did you get into training and how did you get into actually training people how to drive? Well, it's kind of a funny story. My background was mechanical engineering and uh, I was a typical redneck out of control hern with a 1960s model Holden that had a personal mission to see just how fast he could throw it across a particular bridge going to work every day. And then one day a person berated the daylights out of me, which wasn't that unusual and told me if I was half as good as I thought I was, I'd prove it at a racetrack. Well, one thing led to another, and next thing you know, I started working under a guy that was probably the greatest authority in the world in that particular subject. And amongst his resume was being part of the training group that designed training programs for astronauts and for fighter pilots and for vehicle brands, and that was the circle of people I wound up with. And as part of doing that, I worked out that everywhere we traveled, we had the same universal complaint about our participants. In other words, who teaches these people how to drive? This is ridiculous. Somebody should do something about it. The vehicle manufacturers or the insurers or the government. And I thought about it fairly logically and I went, wow, this is interesting. It's, it's almost as though we don't understand our client base. We don't understand our consumer because people don't pay to come to us. They get paid as part of a manufacturing investment to come to us or PhDs, we call them, parents have dough, you know, parents that were trying to get their kids some discipline and using motor racing as a tool to do that. And we didn't even understand what it was that we did beside drive fast. And the intriguing part about that was there was a huge amount of science involved in what we did. But on, as I unraveled those questions, I kept looking across the proverbial fence and went, but the market opportunities on the boring side because they're prepared to pay. And instead of having a proposition where everyone should pay for their engagement, in other words, the vehicle manufacturers should subsidize it or the government or the insurance companies, the whole problem was the parents had no understanding of what it was they were paying for. So mm. there was no value proposition. So once we understood that, that's how we unpackaged and repackaged an entire industry to said, okay, we can actually change driver behavior by how we structure this particular process. 
So it wasn't until I was introduced to a guy at Griffith University called Professor Ian Glendon, who was one of the most foremost authors in applied psychology of driving. He was the one that actually told us what we did and then proceeded to demand to know how the hell somebody like me could have worked out something like that that was globally enigmas. And my answer was, oh, I got no idea, mate. I was just trying to fix a marketing problem. <laughs> in, in other words, if we're going to roll this out, we need to be able to define our consistent deliverables at each and every step. In other words, a customer has to pay a price for a product. They have to understand the value that they're investing in. We have to deliver on that. Then regardless of all the variables, we have to deliver. And if we can't deliver, we need to be transparent about why that's not happening very early on in the piece. And that was how we unpacked and then repacked an entire industry that no one globally had worked out how to structure. Did you feel in that moment, did you feel you were onto something? Oh yeah, there's never been any shortage of the understanding that what we developed was global. The tough part was being the pioneer. And I, I guess that's my message to everybody that's out there is it doesn't matter how good you are at what you do. What you do is a very small part of the overall puzzle of what you've got to become to make it work. So you might be great at building widgets, for example, but are you good at sales? Can you communicate to your customers? Can you brand it? Can you package it? Can you run your business? Do you understand financials? Can you create projections? There's all these things that the moment you start outsourcing that, it's not their business. Mm -hmm. So every time as a business, we've gotten into deep trouble was because I would raise the proverbial white flag and think I need people smarter than me and I would go and recruit, but it was never their investment. It was never their business. And they were always carried away with a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And there was no consequence for the bad decisions that were made. So does that mean that you are less inclined to recruit people? Because I know you said before that you now you have, but does that mean that you, you recruit only a certain... No, 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 no. It, it, it's not that at all. I guess the first thing you have to understand is the people you attract around you has more to do with you than anything else. So as part of all this journey of, you, what you need to be investing in is you also need to be investing in yourself, in your personal growth. And I think the smartest thing, and I've been around lots of astounding people for a kid that grew up in the middle of New South Wales that didn't even know you could do this for a living to wind up in the heady heights of Formula One where it was extravagance in the extreme. Mm. I met some astounding people on that journey and I would always ask them, how did you get here? What do I need to know from you? Mm. And that was before I knew actually what I wanted to do. But one guy was actually the most influential who was a client when I had my workshop and he was setting up a spring water business long before any of us ever thought of buying water. And he said to me one day, if you want to know where you'll be in five years time, look at someone who does what you want to do for five years longer than you. And then there's your map. And it was the most powerful thing that's ever been said. And I use it in business. I use it in relationships. I use it in my life. I even use it about my circle of friends. So, so say and that other, again. Say that again real slow, Gene. Say that part again. If you want to know where you will be in five years' time, look at someone who does what you want to do, but they've been doing it for five years longer than you. Okay. Then that's your map. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it applies in every part mm -hmm. of your life. So if you're going off course off your true north then you don't look at the chaos that's being created you look at yourself and you come back and you recenter yourself and you, what do i need to learn out of this but as part of all this being in business is much more than your widget and it's much more than your skill you're the captain of the ship you have to understand financials you have to do your own books you have to talk with your accountant because it's your ship Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when you engage with IT, you have to understand how you're going to manage them because it's your ship. So when you, no matter what you're going to enter into, it's a conscious decision that you and your partner are making about, okay, this is the enormity of the task that we're taking on. And then you've got to understand, well, what was your five-year plan? At the end of five years, what did you want it to be? What was your exit strategy? Who was going to buy it? What's your client? What's their expectations? Because otherwise, you could invest five years and waste five years and all that money. Mm -hmm. It could be a real sliding doors moment that led you down a, 
a dark path with no end where you had to backtrack and reverse all the way back to the main road and take off again in a different direction. So that's the learning out of it. Okay. Oh, no, that, that's, that's, that's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. So tell me how the fact that you just had a car as a mechanical engineer and you were just thrashing it, seeing how fast you can take it. Someone noticed you, they asked you to come out. That's how you got into the scene of the fast race. Yeah, that purely, way? purely by accident. I didn't okay. even know it existed. Well, yeah. actually, what, what makes this really, really funny was when I was 15 and at school, and you've got to bear in mind, I grew up literally in the middle of New South Wales, and they're asking you the question on, you know, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? I had three standard answers. One was <laughs> I was going to meet a hot young blonde, marry her, have lots of kids, and take over the family farm. Anyway, my folks said that if there was anything I wasn't going to do in life, it was I was not going to take <laughs> over the farm. So I was quite despondent about that. And the next part was... I was going to become an agronomist because I figured what could be cooler than being paid to thrive someone else's ute around someone else's paddock. And I still got to meet my hot blonde and have lots of kids. And uh, they all talked me out of that, which was quite ironic because there's now an entire generation of agronomists missing. So they can only fill one in every 10 jobs. So these guys are making the moolah like you yeah. would not believe. Yeah. And the third one was, I was going to travel the world, teach people how to race cars and change the way we educate drivers. No idea where that came from. We, we had one car race on the TV a year and that was Bathurst and that was my absolute exposure to it. So uh, I got sent off to the army when I was 16 because really? the, yeah, the folks were determined to get me off the farm and you know, show that there's more to life than that. And it was just twists and, and webs. You, you couldn't predict how there was no plan, absolutely no plan. And I just, I guess the one deciding thing that made everything work was I never said no. Didn't matter what anyone said, I would go, yeah, I can do that. And I'd work it out as I went. So did the, did the army change you? Did that give you a certain level of mindset? Um, well, yeah, the army part didn't actually work out quite too well, to be truthful, yeah. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they ended up being a big class action over it and a big court case and uh, oh, yeah, the, no. army got, the army got themselves in lots of trouble. But um, that was actually, I guess, to its credit, that was my mindset because at the grand old age of 18, I knew if I was going to make a success out of life, I had to start from scratch because mm. it was almost like my hard drive had been erased with everything that had gone on in there. So... I decided that every day was going to be about an experience and I set out to live life with the ultimate experiences in mind. So I just never said no. So you said and yes to every opportunity that came your way. That was just your strategy. The only thing I said no to was when I had my workshop, I did a job for a guy who turned out his brother was in the U S who built custom cars for the movies. And I did this job for his brother. So basically this guy bought a car and his wife hated the car and she was demanding he sell it and he really wanted to keep it. And somebody told him about me. So I built one car out of two that made her happy and he got to keep his car. Oh. So <laughs> I, I get this phone call three to four times a year. He go, you're going to come and work for me, you boy. And I go, you're still in Seattle? And he go, yeah. And I said, it's still cold. And he go, yeah. And I go, I told you don't do cold. But the real thing was I knew I'd never come home. I would get so caught up in that life that that would be it. Yet on the other side, I had this path and I had no idea where it was going. And I lived every gig like it was the last. And then it wasn't until I was in, in Malaysia at a racetrack called Sepang. They just built it for the Formula One thing. And we were doing work with Mercedes between there and Shah Alam. Now, when you say work, what, what work are you talking about? Job description, show people how fast cars go. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Every boyhood fantasy job, you know. <laughs> um, it wasn't until I was there that I standed around and looked at who I was working with and what I was doing. And uh, I just thought, wow, how, how did I get here? So there was no, absolute no plan. There was no key strategy. There was no... Um, in fact, there's a funny conversation where the whole group of us were sitting around chewing the fat after what we call a gig. And um, one of the guys said, how the hell are you still here? And most people would take offense to that. And I understood exactly what he meant. I turned to one lot. We called them PhDs. They stood for parents had day. They thought they were going to become motor racing stars. 
went blah, blah, blah. I went, you like, you all think you're going to make a career out of this. And I'll tell you right now, it, it's only about money. And I haven't got the money. I don't even pretend to have the money. So I'm not a threat to you. And I turned to the other group. I went, you lot, you're all trying to capitalize out of your history and your name and your heritage in motorsport. You're looking at your retirement plan. Well, I can't compete with you. So I'm the only neutral, non-threatening person in this entire group. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want anyone's job. Yeah. And uh, anyway, the guy that asked the question, he started laughing. He went, actually, you're 100% right. And that was how I lived every job that I did. And then it wasn't until, as I say, we, I realized everywhere we were traveling that we were having the same universal complaint about drivers. And I mean, we all think the road toll's bad and horrendous. And we all disagree with the way that people are licensed and prepared. And we all shake our head every time we go for a drive going, who the hell does this? But absolutely no one's got a solution besides more fines, more penalties, more rules and more enforcement. And it's the only form of education that allows the student to define the process. So as I say, once I went, wow, this is interesting. We don't understand our value proposition. We can't define our client base. And what is it that we do besides drive fast? And I'm working under a guy that used to train astronauts. Wow. Wow. Wow, and then as, I, as I'm unpacking this thing, I went, oh, hang on a sec. This has got nothing to do with what we all thought it did. It's got everything to do with how our brains are processing threats and hazard information. So in other words, everything we do outside the car that kept us perfectly alive and safe is now in direct conflict because we introduce speed and our brain can't process speed. That's how we mm. teach people to drive at a very, very high level. So we have all this technique and science and muscle memory, all these things that we would build into a driver over that week. So bang, they could operate consistently at this new level. So the more I'm unpacking this thing, the more I'm looking across the proverbial fence going, hang on a sec, all the manufacturers want access into this market because people can buy better, safer cars, cheaper, and everybody wins. So instead of having a business where the vehicle manufacturers had to pay for it and the insurance companies had to pay for it and the government had to pay for it, we flipped the entire thing. In fact, we had Wayne Gardner, the former 500cc Grand Prix champion, say that we'd achieved what the entire industry had spent 40 years trying to achieve, but we'd done it the exact opposite way. There was only one mistake. Actually, there was only, if you talk about mistakes being made, what, what I said before was pretty big, but this was a corker. We, I should say I, because it's all me, completely... <laughs> Completely in the SWAT plan. So all of you list, listeners should have a SWAT plan. Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, right? Mm -hmm. I completely screwed up the SWAT plan. I thought our competitors were mum and dad driving schools. I thought we had this lit. Our competitors were government and academics because they generated income from the problem. Nobody wanted to fix it. Ah. Yeah. Sugar. <laughs> 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 and that is the very definition of a fuba. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that is like, so how old, like, so you're not 18 at this point. You're like in your twenties and you've come to this. Yeah, no, I'm um, 30s. Okay. You're 30, you've come to the, and you've been in this industry for that amount of time. Like you've been in the industry all that time. I'd been in the industry for well over 12 years at that stage. Okay. All right. And so, so here was the irony. By the time I'd worked this out, um, so I'd already been through where I'd lost that first big job, you know, the $26 million a year on a five-year contract. Yeah. And I went and got a business mentor, a guy by the name of Dr. Tom McCaskill, and we assembled a group around us. And we, he taught me how to rethink the way that I was going about doing things. And we repackaged and we released bucket loads of work, so much work. And we had Wayne Gardner convene a meeting of the National Road Safety Council in Sydney. So he's pulled every contact he's got we've got the who's who and away we've rolled out with the presentation and all we got was these academics belting their chests about who had the biggest grant for their particular research project and blah 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 and next thing you know they're all arguing amongst themselves and next thing you know one person says they start picking on our dem on our client base on our demographic on how we pull this together and i went you're you're forgetting this is user pays it doesn't cost the government a cent. In fact, Tom will show you the modeling where we will save the government a billion dollars a year if we're only as quarter as effective as what our numbers have shown that we currently are. Mm 
So for a demographic where a third will crash in their first three months, their post-license crash rate increases 3,000% the day they get their license and it costs our economy $36 billion a year. If we we're only 25, we gave Griffith a sample of a thousand students and we'd had one crash in three years. Massive wow. change in behavior, massive. Now, if we say we're only a quarter as effective of that, say we only had a 20% change to the current statistics, it would still save the New South Wales economy a billion dollars a year on its own. Forget about the lives, the kids, the families, forget about the fact that 75% of the people in young care are under 25 and they're through road trauma. The economic cost benefit to the government with no investment on their part was a billion dollars a year. So they would have jumped on board, like, yes. No, because they were generating millions of dollars a year on their research projects with the universities. Oh my God. And the government was generating hundreds of millions of dollars a year because of speeding and traffic fines and everything else that was going along with the problem. This was a big business. You are kidding me. You are kidding no. me. No. So anyway, let's talk to Tom McCaskill and I, we're just watching this chaos happening and we looked at each other and we went, fuck. <laughs> we got, we, we got the threats wrong. Threats are not driving schools. The threats are our own government. Oh my God. Gene, like, was your brain, like, I'm hearing this and my brain's going, Pow. was your brain, like, in there in that moment going, like, like, you know, that emoji that's just exploding, the brain's exploding? Is, was, was that going on with you? Um, partly. I guess the way I look at life is the opportunity is in the challenge. So, it could be why I'm still single at my age. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> not many women could put up with this sort of a roller coaster ride. But, um, it just, meant, <laughs> it, 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 it just meant that what we had to do was work out how to connect with the consumer because the mm. consumer was actually the client, not the government. I'm, I'm just, I cannot believe that you're, you're stating a fact of how you can provide a solution and the government wouldn't take it because the money that they're generating surpasses the solution that you can give, even though this could save lives, even this could make a more harmonious, harmonious community, even though this could just be for a greater good, they would bypass that because the millions of dollars no, it actually, and it, it, car, it, all that stuff means financially more to them. It actually got even worse. They then funded a project in competition with us called Keys to Drive, where they were funding it to the tune of $15 million a year. And their mantra for it was that all the parents have to do is sit down and shut up and the kids can teach themselves how to drive. Now, pure logic would suggest that if that was possible, we wouldn't have had this problem in the first place because we all teach ourselves how to drive. Our parents did, their parents did, that's how we all did it. Um, when you understand that it's like taking the operating system out of a PC and trying to put it into a Mac, mm. that's the problem. So suddenly everything that we're doing naturally to keep ourselves alive is now in direct conflict because the one thing we changed is speed. Now speed's not a number. Don't get caught up in this every K over is a killer crap. It's just nothing more than a marketing campaign for a very high cash revenue business. That's what my husband says all the time. That's what he says all the time. And I'm like, no, it's not. No. Yes, it is. That's it is. Here's what's going on. Imagine you're doing hundred Ks down the road and you slow down for 60. It feels so slow. You want to hop out of the car and walk. And then all of a sudden 60 feels normal. So what happens is the brain's recalibrated that window of information at 100 back to walking pace because that's our natural biological environment. That's the process. Mm. So when you slow from 100 to 60, the calibration is now wrong and that's why it feels so slow. It feels mm. like you could walk faster. Mm. Then it recalibrates, then 60 is normal. That's how people operate in race cars doing 300 kilometers an hour. It becomes their new normal. So when they talk about a driver, say they have a pit stop and the new driver hops in, they talk about him finding his window or his rhythm. What's really happening is there is this sudden onslaught of information into the brain. And so the driver for the first half, three quarters of the lap is driving by his reference points, why his brain's recalibrating and settling it all down and putting it all in perspective. And then once it stalls the effect of speed, then he can feel his car, then he can feel his tires, then he starts to work with it and bang his right on the pace. Now, here's the catch. The road environment is actually far more complex than the race environment because on a racetrack, they spend a week 
practicing, all going in the same direction, all doing the same thing, all with the same job description. Mm -hmm. On the road, the threats mm -hmm. are coming from four different directions at once. This is driver behavior. So your fatal five is nothing more than symptoms of how this threats hazard perception process is at odds with the environment. So what our program showed that by putting this same process in place and understanding how to do it, and there's a lot to this because we had to work out how to do it. Say we had 2000 driving school instructors. We had to work out how to train every one of them the same. We had to work mm -hmm. out how to control the flow of information, how to keep everything on track. We had to work out how to train the parents for free so they understood what the instructors were doing, why, when, where, and how, and how to go practice and why they needed to do things. And then we had to benchmark it on a scale of proficiency so that we all had a target that we we're aiming for and the student could see what they were achieving and, and all these things. The, once you do that, what you actually do is you stall the speed and they can see. And once they can see, the rational person comes back out and then they stop crashing cars. Oh. So the top end of the industry thinks it's all about loss of control and the art of driving, which it does to a degree. The bottom end of the industry thinks it's all about rules and compliance, which is where government comes from. Mm. Well, their stone statistics show that that doesn't work very well at all. Rules is kind of like religion. It's a set of principles for us to all get along with. So we kind of know what to expect. Mm. What we worked out how to do was to create the bridge that linked the two objectives. So you present this to government and they say, no, it's not going to go, it's not going to go with us. So then now you've taken this and that was a threat that you didn't anticipate. And then now you take your training and now you take it to the consumer market. Is that correct? You've pivoted. Correct. Now. Yeah, we had to work out our challenge was mm. that everyone's so indoctrinated with the government's fear messaging, they all believe that if you do 100 hours of practice, you can drive. Yeah. But there's not one thing in that child's education where they've been allowed to do 100 hours of anything of their own accord and suddenly being given a ticket. They can't teach themselves school. They can't teach themselves sports. Mm -hmm. As we say to them, if you've got a group of boys that love kicking a football around and they spent a couple of years doing it and thought they were God and you put them into the NRL, how good would they do? Mm -hmm. You know, at the Broncos, they might have half a chance, but you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> different, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, we have to go there, yeah. But you know what I'm talking about? It is the only form of education where we throw the baby out with the bathwater and we say, you can work it out, yet it's the highest risk. It carries the highest death rate. It's more deaths than suicide and depression and all those things put together. Over 70% of the people in young care are under 25 and they're there through road trauma. And the reason the road toll has gone through the roof post COVID is because no one was actually taught to drive in the first place. So then now, now your mission is to teach people how to drive properly. So how are you getting the word out to, for people to come and join your training program? Uh, well, Believe it or not, that's been a three-year exercise to work out how to cut through this particular challenge because the parent didn't understand what they were buying. The average person didn't understand what made us unique and therefore it all becomes about price and time. Who's quick, who's cheap, who gets me my hours the quickest way. So we got involved with a very intelligent guy in Sydney called Robert Strofield from Strofield Communications. Uh, he's been around since the Peter Brock days. He was part of the green team that took Toyota from number 10 to number one with Bob Miller and those guys. Uh, he introduced Samsung into the Australian market with big screen LCDs when Samsung was just perceived to be a cheap Korean company at the time. So we worked out how to unpack it and we basically settled onto the fact that we now call it the art of driving. And we went from there and the, the introduction into the NDIS was really, really quite interesting. We, another thing fell into that completely by accident not quite literally accident no pun intended but you get the idea <laughs> just, and, just for our international give it, um, listeners NDIS is the national disability scheme in Australia that helps those who are on a disability how to just re-enter uh, just be able to well, I don't know re-engage within society without missing out and so that's what Jean's talking about NDIS is the national disability scheme so please go on correct yeah people with no arms legs mm. um range of disabilities, autism on the spectrum, all that sort of thing. And so what we learned very quickly was the approach that we were taking with this, how this connects together, how it's retraining the brain's natural process and creating a new script was tenfold above what we were experiencing and what I'd call the normal market. So suddenly we had these kids that were absolutely unable to engage in any way 
becoming the most astounding drivers. We're talking about people so autistic that um, they refuse to communicate with people. And then we've found that we're getting people off disability control. So we're taking people who are being told they're now dependent on hand controls and all that, and they've lost use of their limbs. And the process is such that it re-engages fine muscle and motor skills. And we're basically getting them to drive with full control without the need for disability controls. So in one week, we would have saved the federal government another $250,000 just as a little driving school. Wow. Just in the fact that these people now didn't need all that care and support, specialist vehicles, specialist vehicle modifications, all that. But the most important thing is it gave them full independence as a normal person again. And out of it comes the most astounding story. So we've got guys, one guy had a burst aorta, and apparently less than 1% of the people that have these conditions actually survive. Anyway, he came out in his wheelchair and I was watching him and I went, we can do this without controls. He argued, OT argued, everybody argued. And I went, look, just give me a couple of weeks. We'll do it for free. If, if we can't nail this, we'll do it for free. Next thing you know, the guy's well, booked himself back into rehab. He's worked out how to get rid of his wheelchair. He's organized the systems out of his car. And he is just on a mission to be mobile again. There's another guy we had, uh, ex-army guy, say he's like your man's man. We ended up writing a blog about him, actually. I'll send it through to you. So he was hit by a person doing an illegal U-turn and um, he was pronounced dead a few times. He's yeah, horrific injuries, horrific. And his doctor kind of described him as a cross between a giraffe, a gazelle and steady Eddie. So you get the idea, you know, he had very big uncontrolled movements of his limbs and, and so forth. And He'd had been, he'd gone through this process four times. So four occupational therapists, four driving schools, four paths to rehab and four times the police would take his license straight off him. Oh. So what we'd worked out very early on is it was almost like rehab for the brain, which was really quite intriguing. And the reason that's the case is we always say that driving is the most complex thing that we'll ever undertake, but people don't understand what that means. So it's not until you've, you've had someone that you're trying to reconnect their brain back together that you actually realize how complex this activity is. So instead of their rehab being someone's picking their foot up and moving their foot and then their next foot and doing those sort of things, your rehab process is, is you're now con connecting multiple flows of information and multiple skill sets and you're creating coordination between various muscle groups and you've got to create situational awareness and you have to start moving this and evolving this forward so they're prepared for what they're going to introduce the vehicle into. So there's lots and lots and lots of things that are absolutely going on. And, and the way I described it to this person and his wife was think of it like there's an electrical firestorm in this guy's head. In other words, he knows what he needs to do, but there's a really big difference between I know what I need to do and actually making it happen. It's like the stray electrical storm with current going everywhere, but where it was actually supposed to go. Sure enough, he gave the drive of absolute drives, but the way that we did it was we drilled right down to the very basic detail of muscle movements, muscle groups, hand, even down to the, how we wanted his hand to move around things. And we gave him very specific exercises to practice. You're now going to do it like this. So here was this guy. And as part of doing this, we worked out he was blind, half blind in one eye. So his right eye from halfway down was black. So what would happen? He would drive into the black spot because when your body's been through trauma, this threats hazards perception process I was talking about before, it's, it's tenfold now, if not more, because the body's in permanent trauma mode. It's always trying to protect itself. Mm. So everything it's doing to keep itself safe is now in direct conflict because of this speed factor. And it's not a number. It's not that you're doing 20 or 30 kilometers an hour or hundred kilometers an hour, or whatever. It's a fact that it's happening faster than our biological process. Okay. okay. So by connecting all these dots back together and getting a baseline and then evolving the baseline, we got him driving to the point where we were doing high speed driving out through the hinterland, blind corners, blind crests and all that. And we nearly had a head on with the car. I'm watching him. I'm watching the car. I'm watching him, watching the car. I'm going, yeah, okay, it's time I intervene now. So we found a spot. We debriefed 
and I got told that I am blind, half blind in one eye. So imagine half your eye blind, black. So he was driving into a big black hole on top of all these other things going on. So then once we understood that, we went, okay, here's the techniques to counteract that. So you're not going to see your blind spot anymore. And it's exactly the same on how we look through information. Didn't you take all these success stories and just like blast it through the media, mainstream media, like get TV, get radio, get them to write it up and get them to do the talking for you to make sure that this becomes mainstream. Like, did you do any of that? Um, Look, we're in the process. The challenge is that there are so many moving parts to this thing as a business, because as you create demand, you have to have the ability to service. To have the ability to service, you've got to have your distribution network. To do that, there's so many rules and compliance every business has to conform to. We had to set up our own RTO relationship. We had to write our own instructor training program. And you've got to remember, the government's competing against us with its own program called Keys to Drive. It's literally just all it can do is give select driving schools that support its methodology the capacity to give new students one free driving lesson. That's $15 million a year of federal money down the tube. So then you've got a program like this where we've had to develop our own systems, processes, applications, softwares, computers, run the thing through phones. The the network's huge and we've had to self-fund every step of growth because our primary competitor was the people we're doing it for. (laughs) Like, it's just mind-boggling. It's just literally, I just... Sometimes I think about that job opportunity in the States and it was a real sliding doors moment. <laughs> are you, are you, so I know because in 2016 you started franchising. Is, is a, how's that franchising rollout going? Um, it's been a bit of a roller coaster. The first big hurdle we had, we got caught up in a bit of a Gold Coast boiler room scam where the law firm that we thought was our law firm turned out they weren't a law firm and the IT firm that they connected us into yeah, it turned out that wasn't an IT firm. Oh. And suddenly the next step of tech we needed, we not only didn't have, but we'd paid for it. So we'd done our money and we'd done our time and we didn't have it. So we had to roll that one back. And then we rolled it all forward again last year. So at this stage, the growth has been quite good and strong. and We're building a good solid team around it, but we're just slow and methodical in terms of how we're doing it. So... I want to just like iron this out with your program. It's a school, it's a driving school where it's right. so traditionally when I went to a driving school, I had an instructor next to me. I read the L book. I read the book that you're supposed to learn how to drive. I had an instructor sitting next to me and he would sit next to me and I would drive and he would correct me as I'm going in and out and whatever until to the point where I could go get my license. Is that the same thing that happens with you guys? There's a manual that you read. You, one of your instructors are sitting next no, to the... No, no, it, no. It's, it's very different. Think of it as a whole of community approach. So our business approach is our distribution networks becomes the car dealers and the vehicle brands because they've got the car on floor plan finance. They can provide cars as part of their business model. Because right. remember, we've got to come back to our core problem that the consumer doesn't understand the perception of value about what the product is. So there's a lot of dead running time in it. There's all sorts of things that you have to counter when you're employing staff and you can't do that with the way it's traditionally run. So the whole position was how this worked as part of another business that would benefit from what this business gave them in terms of community value tools and exposure. Then we gave all the schools around that business three free programs specific for years 10, 11 and 12. And that allows us to talk to the students about all the things that you don't have time to with a driving lesson, why they look and they don't see, how we make flawed decisions, how their brains actively working against them, all that sort of thing. So the year 10 program, what we found was they've got zero perception between the rules in a book and how to apply them out on the road. It's, again, it's like a different language. So we designed a program for the schools that basically use drive cam footage, all these crazy, funny accidents you see. We go through the rules, we break it down into three key rules to keep us all safe, and then we show how not following one of those rules led to that crazy situation. So the the pretense with that is we're all normal people that every day that hop into a car to go for a drive yet we all crash. Those two things don't go in together. Good people shouldn't crash cars. So we're told that everyone that does crash is reckless and irresponsible and not paying attention when it's clearly not the case at all. We can prove that now. So that's a year 10 program. And by default, that prepares them to get their learner's license, but they now understand how to apply the rules practically and what they're watching for and that sort of thing. 
the year 11 programs are a series of workshops. So even if they don't come through what we do, we've given them the essence of what we call postural stability. We talk to them about social conditioning. We talk to them about peer group responses and all those sort of things so that they've got some valuable tools to take with their parents when they're doing their 100 odd hours of driving. And then the year 12 program, it's about the social adaptability side of it. So in other words, you've got your license, now what? Why are you overrepresented? How do you interact with technology, for example? So it's really easy as an example to say, don't use your phone. But these kids have been using their phone since they were 10. Mm. And the phone manufacturers know that the phones and the programs are designed to become addictive. It's worse than hardcore drugs. Mm. And there's plenty, there's plenty of studies done on this. So you can't take a drug addict and say, well, you can't use drugs now when you're in this particular environment because the first thing they'll do is want to shoot up because that's what they do. That's how their nervous system is now wired. So what we do is we explain the why you don't do it. And part of that is that we did a project with 60 minutes years ago when drive cams first became popular and one of the participants had a monumental crash, nearly died. So we captured that footage and we play it and we get them to send a message. And no sooner have they started to send the message, then this car is wrapped around a tree. And then they'll blame speed. They'll blame all these factors on why it wasn't their phone. And then we backtrack the footage back and we prove that he wasn't speeding. We proved what was happening. We prove it was a third party's fault that triggered the entire thing. But what we do is show that how far they've traveled blind. And then suddenly there's a relative reason why not to use the phone. I actually understand consequence now. So and then we go into how to look after the peer group and all those sort of things. So there's been a years and years of writing all these courses and programs and yeah. systems and processes. It's been a monumental job, yeah. It sounds like a huge job. And it, so it sounds like it's, it's more learning in terms of you teaching. It's not so much the traditional way. It's you teaching and speaking and showing, instructing what's going on where people are now getting an understanding of what causes crashes, what, what allows someone to be safe in a car, what allows, and that's what it is. It's just so what happens, so where it changes out in the field is parents don't purchase a driving lesson anymore, they purchase a program. And the programs are three, six or 12 months depending on the outcome that the parent is looking for. So what we're doing is qualifying what practice is now. This whole idea of 100 hours is fantastic in merit, but only if you define what practice actually is. The same as your sports or your schoolwork or your tutoring or your music practice, anything like that. So at every step, when the, student, when the instructor meets the student and takes them for your traditional driving lesson, the instructor has a set program that they're working to. And the program is all focused on retraining what we call embodied cognitive skill, which, are, which is your brain's natural threats hazard perception process. So by doing that, we're putting all these pieces in place where we stall speed. And then we teach them how to see. And then we teach them how to strategize what they see. So what we end up doing is we use the road environment to create multiple activities to involve or evolve this process over time. So the difference between the three, six and the 12 month is the amount of time and the amount of experiences we get to introduce them to. And that means the driver change, behavior change happens at a far greater rate. Has anyone come back to you and said three, six, 12 months? I mean, come on, that's too long. I mean, I mean. What are you going to do 12 months of practice anyway? Presentation, take, give me 90 minutes and show it to me. No, no, it, it's not that. We're talking about driving lessons out on the road. The driving, the school part, what happens in the schools is separate. That's done in school time within their free period allotments and what happens now. Okay. We're talking about instead of the parent going for budget Bob's UBU driving lesson for an hour, where the parent doesn't know what happened, the student okay. thinks they did good, the instructor's only prerequisite was to entertain the student so they thought he was a great guy so they would book more lessons. Mm. We're now saying the first 10 sessions, this is what we do. We start at this point and we're going to get you to this point, which is all we did with this guy I was talking about that had that accident. We needed to finally control his motor skills to such a high degree. Mm. His uncontrolled skills were so bad, he would take his hand off the wheel and then couldn't find the steering wheel again. Oh, God. Like the, the injuries, you could not understate them or overstate them enough. They were massive. Mm. His eyes were pointing in different directions. He was blind in one. There was all these things going on. But driving was a huge part of this guy's identity. Mm. So as I said, we couldn't fix the electrical storm, but what we could do 
was calm down the neuropathways. We could create such defined process and we could move the planning so far in front and then we could control the muscle groups for what we wanted to achieve that he now had very finely controlled actions despite his disabilities. How Make long sense? did it take you from, from start to finish to get him to get thriving and comfortable? Three months. Three months? Three months. Wow. So when you consider the, the, the four occupational therapists, the four driving schools, the years that he'd spent doing this, and if he'd been taught that right from the beginning, same time frame, three months, it would have been fine. But then it started opened up other things in him. It started, it started showing benefits in all different parts of his life as well, because now he had purpose again. Mm. And that's what we forget about it. Mm. So, if you look at the teenagers that need it, their environment, the one thing that's changed that we all forget is if you look at the cars that we learned to drive in, they were pretty agricultural, horrible pieces of crap. Like, let's be honest, you know, mine used to get so much what we call axle tramp where the wheels would be bouncing off the ground that I would be sideways through corners, holding the thing flat, knowing I was eventually going to come back straight again. <laughs> Total commitment. <laughs> And it was actually part of their product engineering back in the day to make the cars handle so poorly it would scare people into slowing down. Remember when radial tune suspension came out and mm. the Holdens and those cars? No. Back in, back <laughs> in the 70s. Back in the late 70s, they came out with radial tune suspension and they were showing that they developed this brand new suspension tune because of they're now putting these new tires on, blah, blah, blah. What it was, this big American chief comes out and says, that is the dumbest policy I've ever heard. You've got to fix it. So how do they fix it without blaming the car and saying they were poorly engineering the car? So they blame the tires. <laughs> this true story. It's actually happened. So, so the cars that we learned to drive in would scare us into slowing down. Now, benchmark of vehicle engineering is what we call NVH, noise, vibration, and harshness. That's how we perceive the quality of a vehicle by how much it isolates us from that information. Okay. Today's cars. To give you an example, Top Gear did this thing. They got the Ford Focus that won the World Rally Championship and they got the current model that was five years newer. The production car was faster than the World Rally car because of the improvements in engineering. Wow. Okay. So what that means is it isolates the driver from all the information that made us slow down. So these... Young drivers today are in this perfect melting pot where the car's isolating them from the information. They're not being taught how to finally intercept and, and tune and learn into that. So they're not being taught the art of driving. They don't know when to brake. They all believe rules are going to keep them safe. And rules don't keep you safe. A traffic light never fronted up in court and said, but I was green. Yeah. Wow. So we don't. So the environment's more complex. It's more unforgiving. It's more competitive out there. We've got multi-lanes, lots of cars, all these different things thrown in. And we've got this person where we said, you can drive for 100 hours. And for some, that means going to and from school. Yeah. For some, the parents realize they're short of time. So they'll drive to Cullen Muller and back a couple of times. All these different things that you would not do with any other form of education. In fact, if you did it in your workplace, the government would shut you down. So where, so does, that in leave, terms where of just does that leave you, Gene? Where does that leave you and Total Driver? Where does that leave you? What is your plan moving forward so that, I mean, what's your greatest vision for a Total Driver? The business is global. It's still global. In fact, the opportunity is better now than what it was back when I first started the business. Primarily because of the growth that I've been through with all these hiccups, mm. <laughs> you could say. And that, I guess, for everyone listening to this, because, I mean, you're aiming at people that are just, they're wanting that tree change. They're wanting to have that fresh start. They've had this burning desire or goal in themselves mm. for years. And there's massive adversity out there. Um, so, for instance, with the 12-month the plan that we take people through, the reason we started doing that was we found people were paying driving schools to do 100 hours of lessons. And 100 hours of driving around the same streets will not teach you anything. So we ran them through the first program. Then we took them to the advanced program where we gave them all this understanding, awareness, skills, knowledge, that sort of thing. And then we made up the final 60 hours of road trips. So we'd have day trips, weekend trips, and week-long trips. So we took a group to Bathurst 
for the 12 hour race. One of the guys that was a mentor used to race in the Paris Dakar as a solo motorcyclist. So we talked to him about adversity and triumphs and planning and that another guy made his career in formula one by building the race cars for people like Ayrton Senna and David Coulthard and all that back in the formula Ford days in return for being able to sleep in the workshop and use the parts that he took off their cars. Cause every, component in a race car has got what we call life the lightest way is the quickest way so they don't last long so he would use all their spare parts and build his own car and go out and build beat them with a car he was building out of spare parts wow. so you can imagine the challenges and the adversities and that. so we surround mm. these these young kids with people that are really inspiring for who they are and what they achieve just to show them that life's not always easy and and like, that's a big thing to come out of everyone for this. For every major hurdle, you could either shut the doors and walk away. Because I, I could tell you some stories, I tell you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You could Go shut ahead. the doors. <laughs> oh, we haven't even touched the tip of the iceberg. You could shut the doors and walk away and go and get a job. And a job stands for just off broke. Or you can sit there. Say that again. Say that again. Say that again. Job stands for just off broke. <laughs> Dear Lord, yeah, yeah. Or you could realize that within adversity is opportunity. And the opportunity might be a different way of looking at what you're doing. It might be a different way of looking. Like there was one time I wrote off 12 months because I kept running into the proverbial brick wall. I went, this is more about me than anything else. I need to work out what this dynamic is in with me that we're hitting this wall. So let's take a step to the left and let's go and do that. Yeah. So if you look at your business as a journey in who you ultimately could be and want to be, and then you need to think of things like what's your exit strategy. So I understood right from the beginning that our exit strategy was global. We knew who the partners were going to be. We knew why they were going to be partners. We knew what their value proposition was going to be. So even when we we're having the discussions leading into the GSC, the whole reason we got as far as we did was because it was built to be that scale right from the very beginning. The mistake that was made, as I said, was not understanding the process of a competitive bid. If I'd gone in there and played hardball and got the written contract, it wouldn't have happened. What happened on a global market? It would have been a done deal. Yeah. But then again, you have to question, would I have been capable of holding the ship together mm. at that new level? And the answer is probably not. It was a world I'd never been introduced to. Mm. So there's all, for each challenge, there is opportunity for growth. Yeah, no, without doubt. And I, I just want to touch it because I could talk about this journey that you've just now unboxed for us and unpacked for us. I mean, it just goes further and further and further deeper into it the more we talk about it. But I just want to bring home a few things that you've mentioned. And that is in the beginning, how you were able to, you said that you kind of put into place who you attract around yourself. Like you have a big part to play in who you, is being attracted to in terms of massive. Your, in terms of yeah. your, how, because you were working under someone who was training people to um, be astronauts. I mean, that's a huge thing to be in a space of. How do you strategize, or not even strategize, you probably do it unconsciously. How do you make sure that you are in a certain set of mindset so that you're attracting the right talent, you're attracting the right opportunities, you're attracting, how do you go about that person? When you're young and you don't understand any of this, you've got blind enthusiasm and untold motivation. I had no idea what I was even doing. Okay. I used to use a career benchmark when I'd walk into a room and I would look at people and I would just shake and crap myself and go, how am I going to speak to this lot? Mm -hmm. And the funniest part was when I started with BMW, I copped a lot of flack for being the country bumpkin. So I went and booked into deportment courses. I learned how to speak. I forgot that I was actually surrounded by all these gorgeous women. It could be a great, great opportunity for a single bloke. You know, I was so singly focused that I was going to show this guy that I was going to be corporate BMW if it was the last thing I did. And when I got to Mercedes, I kind of worked out that everybody was exactly where I was at. That was, they were crapping themselves too. Mm. So I did exact opposite. I just completely disarmed them by walking up going, g'day, I'm Gene, blah, 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 blah. And away we'd go and we'd end up having the greatest time because there was no pretense anymore. Mm. And then what I found was when it gets really serious and you've got to start digging deep, that's when all this other stuff starts to come out. So when you're riding the, the wave, you're naturally gravitating all those people around you. If you've fallen back off the wave, 
it's a really, really hard job to paddle forward and either try and get back up to you where, where you were or take stock and wait for the next set to come through and go and paddle and work hard again. And there, that means you've got to assimilate with new people. You've got to earn the right all over again. You've got to reestablish your credibility. So for anyone that's into surfing, they'd know when you're trying to learn how to catch waves, it's damn hard work. Mm, I used mm. to spend a day paddling straight, just trying to work out how to catch. I was trying to work out how to get out. <laughs> that's another one, exit strategy. So let yeah. me ask you, that's that. How do you find your mentor? You mentioned before that you hired a mentor. How do you go about finding someone who can elevate you? Like what is your strategy to finding someone who can show you the ropes? Remember the five-year plan? Mm. If you want to know where you'll be in five years' time, go and find where those people are hanging out. Okay. Then you've got to be careful of the sharks because there's more sharks on land than there is in the water. Okay. So mm. you've got to choose carefully and wisely. And nine times out of 10, the answers are going to be within yourself anyway. Mm. Mm. 100%. 100%. Mm. So we only look for a mentor. Is that just to rally us, to cheer us, to just. No, know, no. For me, it was because I knew I'd screwed up that deal. Ah, okay. Okay. Like it all started with one brand offering me five just to take it off my hands. Mm. And then conversation started, then this started, then that started, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Okay. And it wasn't that I was greedy. It was just the deal I was chasing meant I still got to do my business saying I just. Um, that was because it was my journey. It wasn't the money. It was the journey, if that mm. made sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah. So in terms of how do you find those right people around you you then you need to understand your journey so i went searching because i knew i'd screwed it up and i needed to learn how that top end of business worked i needed to learn how they thought i needed to learn how to communicate with them i needed to learn how business was being done at that level and then the biggest thing i learned was if we just concentrated on the basics it would have come straight back to us anyway mm, without a doubt. so we kind of went down a rabbit hole how long have you had total driver for 10 years now 10 years have you lost the passion for it no, no, I've, I've lost a great relationship through it, which was pretty harsh, but um, the passion's still strong. It's, it's, it's more than just what we do. It's who we are. It's the changes that we make. It's these people where their lives are transforming. And, and even the young teenagers coming through, you watch them evolve so much. That's what it's about. And I guess from my perspective, the opportunity is still there. So the only thing stopping us is us. Because mm. so I think anyone can take on the government strategy. It's it's you guys. I mean, really, like you've got the evidence, you've got the proof, you've got the know-how, you've got the program. If anyone yeah. that can recalibrate the driving structure in New South Wales and beyond, it's it's you. You've got you've got the recipe. Everything's been developed: systems, processes, technology, know-how. It's all been done. Incredible. What's your so, greatest vision for all of this? Like, what would be your ultimate vision? I always wanted to build a business that paid me to travel the world and drive cool cars. <laughs> but it, the ultimate vision is global platform where there's huge social change and you can see the benefit that's happened as a consequence of that. So in other words, you're not hearing all this crap on the TV about another death and another fatality, another this and another that, that, our roads become really enjoyable to drive. You know, we've lost that passion for going for a drive. Mm -hmm. And that didn't hit me until a few years ago. I was going to go back and see my, my folks that were in Canberra for, for Christmas. And um, next thing you know, I'm getting all these phone calls from my mum going, no, we don't want you to do it. Why? It's too risky. It's not risky. I do this for a living. No, the risk of losing your license is too high. It'll affect your business. And I went, wow. We are so worried about being caught for something that is not even an offense. We're just told it's bad. Yeah, yeah. That we actually won't even go and see our families now. Mm, mm. And driving is supposed to be that one thing that keeps us alive. It's that sense of adventure. It opens opportunities. It, you know, we, one of the young blokes that we took down to this Bathurst trip, and people kind of forget with these special needs, you know, most of them can't even get through year eight and year nine with how their learning challenges are working and X, Y, Z. They're very slow in picking things up, very, very slow in connecting the dots. 
And people don't stop to realize for us to achieve what we're achieving in a standard time frame is really, really quite remarkable because we're doing what an entire education system can't do. And we're doing it with the most complex thing that they've ever done. Yeah. Anyway, part of having this young kid was teaching him ownership and stewardship and what being a man was all about. Yeah. So ironically, where we ended up staying was high on the hill. It looked fantastic, but <laughs> we had to leave one car down on the road. It physically couldn't get up. And another car broke down because of the heat that was going on through the New South Wales bushfires at the time. Oh, so no. this kid became our shuttle driver and that was his job. And it was almost making a joke out of it being rally cross, but you know, we'd have to go into town to get parts. He was a driver. We'd have to do this. He was a driver. And as a reward, he got to drive the car around the Bathurst circuit as wow. part of the pre-event build up. And he got to spend time with these amazing people. He drove through Sydney traffic when we couldn't even get him drive through the main street at Toowoomba. Wow. So these kids, they come out with this huge sense of purpose. Wow. So if you ask why I do this as a business, this is, this is the why. It's, it's so much more than just a driving school. Oh, wow. It's just gorgeous, Jean. It's absolutely just definition of inspiring, truly. This is the definition of inspiring. It's, it's transformational. It's truly yeah, transformational. It's, it is pretty cool. We even had one young lady, Mallory. I'll send you through the blog on her. 30. Turned out where she was born, I don't know if it was Monsanto, one of those companies was experimenting with chemicals, and then there was a five-year spell of stillborns in the oh. area as a result of this chemical testing. So her twin had died in the womb mm -hmm. and she was 30, gorgeous looking woman, right? On a Zimmer frame. And I'm watching her going, what the hell's happened to you? So it turned out she had a congenital, uh, sorry, a defective collagen gene. And um, so her body was just decaying and she's only 30. So the OT was adamant she was going to have full disability controls and all that. And the thing that I really detest about these controls is suddenly they're disabled. Mm. As if it's not confronting enough to deal with this with you know day-to-day -day movements. It's even when you hop into a car to go for a drive. So I was watching what was happening physically and I went, no, we can do this. And we argued with the OT again. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Love that. <laughs> and sure enough, again, same 10 session program. And it was at the point we go, okay, what's your greatest fear? What's your greatest challenge? She says, I want to go for a drive on a windy road. So fantastic. So we did a lap around Mount Tambourine from the easiest way up to the hardest way down in between. And this girl on her assessment was doing emergency braking from a hundred kilometers an hour. Now you got to remember, she can't even stand up and support her own body weight. So suddenly suddenly she's got her life back she's got independence back she can go and choose the car she wants to buy because that's a car that inspires her oh god gene if someone wants to find out about how they can access total driver where can they go uh the website totaldriver.com.au and that's where they can go and connect with you and book you guys in and get a program for their kids or for themselves that's where that's they correct I've got my one last question. One last question, Jean, because um, I, it, it has been over now and I could go on for a lot longer. But I just got to ask you this, because this program is so transformational, it creates not just a, a skilled driver, but it creates a competency that really boosts every other facet of life because you're able to be secure on a, such a dangerous field called driving. What, how did you go about putting, and I'm talking about this from a learning and development person myself, how did you put together a program so powerful as this? Like, what was it? Did you do a training needs analysis? Did you just, just research? Did you then, after the research, trial and error, what works, what doesn't? What was the process you used to put this program together? During this whole COVID thing, I got into watching documentaries on inspiring people, right? And one of the ones was on ZZ Top. And what made these guys so unique was they were all born in Texas. They didn't know each other. The only thing they had in common was they would listen to an illegal radio station from Mexico that played this particular style of music. And everything that happened in their career, not one thing was planned. From playing with the Rolling Stones as a support act to even how their beards came together. So they basically had the same manager as the guy that used to work with Elvis, right? So one of the guys, his mum used to serve Elvis in the diner. And that was how that connection had happened. So anyway, they've burnt themselves out after the Bigger Than Texas tour. There's this whole story behind that. 
and they went to take a three-month sabbatical off and the drummer went to go into rehab because he said the only reason he wasn't a drug addict was he couldn't afford that much money in drugs. So unfortunately, when they became so successful, he could afford that much money and became... So you can see the way this is going. So three months turned into three years. The bass player became... Uh, he worked in an airport as a baggage handler because he just wanted to know what it would feel like to be normal again. The lead guy went traveling Europe to establish all these different music scenes and went to India and became a Buddhist and all this sort of stuff was going on. So record labels, biggest one brought them out. Rah, rah, and then they all basically got summons back after three years. You now have to play again. You don't have a choice. And the only thing they had in common was they were all completely unkept and unshaven, except for the drummer who turned out his name was Frank Beard, but he couldn't grow the beard. <laughs> and then they wrote the song Legs and everybody hated it. The recording artists, their managers, everybody hated it. Um, but it turned out their look with the beards, this song, the idea of a video with a band that came in to save the average working man and connecting to the hot girl was could not have been scripted better and they went on to create infamy when i set out to start total driver i didn't even know this existed as an industry remember i was 15 three career options family farm agronomist travel the world teach people how to race cars and i wound wound up in the army of all places and then as i've somehow stumbled into this gig of traveling the world teaching people how to drive fast I see this opportunity and I went, wow, we can actually change the way we educate drivers. I still hadn't connected the two paradigms together. I didn't set out to create the world's best driving program. I set out to fix a marketing problem. What do I have to do to stabilize an entire industry so I can connect all my key partners, the insurers, the vehicle manufacturers, the schools, and give a whole community approach that connects parent, student, and total driver to create the best possible outcome. Then how do I test and measure? Okay, now how do I train my staff so that we've got consistency in delivery? What do I have to do to support that so it works better when I'm not there than when it does there? How do I run a program in Timbuktu the same way we're running a program in our own town? It wasn't until I was with Professor Ian Glendon at Griffith University that he told me what we did. I still didn't comprehend the enormity of what we'd actually achieved. And then we had a guy, Dr. Andrew Peterson, write his thesis on the program that proved through science, the clear change in driver behavior. And they said, this is how you've actually done this. So there was no plan. And that was what I found that was common with all these great people, whether it be the ZZ Tops or whoever, they just loved what they did. And it worked. So I think all the adversity you go through as a business owner, as a person, in your relationship, everything's about your personal growth to prepare you for the next step. If you look at that, so the saying I got out of that was in adversity, there's opportunity. When it's all falling to pieces, you've just got to sit back and go, what am I supposed to learn? Mm -hmm. Take that. And then the five-year plan. Yeah. Use Love those two pain. pieces of knowledge. Love it, Jane. Thank you so much for joining us on that note. I just have to wrap it up because that was could not have been ending on a better note than that. So for sharing your journey, no sharing Total Driver with us, so sharing the transformation and what people can actually access, which is completely news to me, and opening our eyes to what's possible, thank you for doing the work that you do. Yeah, no problems. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Guys, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I hope you've got a lot out of that. And please go to totaldriver.com. Is it .au as well, Gene? .com.au, yes. .com.au to find out more, to access this really life transformational program for driving, and especially for nieces, nephews, for kids, for anyone that you know that could benefit from being a better driver to creating a better and safer community. Thank you, guys. And I will catch you on the very next episode. God bless.